On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Such a busy programme. Let's just get straight into the front pages of this morning's newspapers. Uh, we'll start with the Irish Mail on Sunday. That's a story that you heard Ellen and Tina Gates reporting on just in the news a couple of moments ago. Uh, key HSE board member quits over €2 billion euro hole, is how it's described on the front page there. The senior HSE executive board member has resigned after serious concerns he raised about a €2 billion euro shortfall in the National Service Plan this year being ignored. The revelation comes after Health Minister Stephen Donnelly this week told Cabinet colleagues that his budget is already in trouble, uh, their words, for the first three months of the year. In a briefing that was described by Roisin Shortall of the Social Democrats as a spectacle, uh, Mr Donnelly blamed significant pressure on hospital services, but the Mail on Sunday can reveal concerns over a potential shortfall of up to €2 billion in the service plan were raised with the Minister as far back as last autumn when the HSE was trying to finalise its spending plan for the year ahead. Those concerns ultimately culminated in the resignation of respected board member and the chair of the HSE's Risk and Audit Committee, Brendan Lenahan, who's a former president of the Institute of Chartered Accountants. He said he had no choice but to stand down, citing a lack of transparency in how the figures were presented in the service plan. That's the front of the Mail on Sunday. Uh, Sunday Independent, um, one of many Fine Gael stories, although it is not the, the tr- trending Fine Gael story across all the papers, uh, but they do tell us that former Junior Minister Damien English will not be investigated by the state's ethics watchdog, despite admitting to lying on a planning application for his family home. The Fine Gael TD resigned as Junior Minister for Employment Affairs and Retail Business in January after it emerged that as an opposition TV, TD, he falsely told his local authority that he didn't own another home when he applied to build a one-off house in 2008. But in a move which is likely to intensify calls for its overhaul, the Standards of Public Office Commission has concluded that English did comply with the Ethics and Public Office Act in his annual declarations and that a complaint against him was not of sufficient gravity to warrant investigation. That's been confirmed to the People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, who made uh, that complaint to SIPO. One thing that's worth clarifying in that is that the thing that SIPO has now ruled out investigating is whether there was anything wrong with his declarations, uh, his annual disclosures to the doll of his interests. Um, There is separate, I think, I believe, ongoing parallel inquiries as to whether um, correct um, documentation or whether anything incorrect was passed on to the County Council. That is still a live matter of investigation. But Damien English not now believed to have uh, made any issues with the filing of his uh, members' interests forms, uh, even though there were some question marks about all of that too. Uh, the Sunday Business Post this morning, uh, quite interesting front page story there about how the government is moving to break the historic logjam over weekend and evening working for doctors, medics and other hospital staff. Uh, Stephen Donnelly and his top officials are looking to end a system which is effectively running Monday to Friday, which is seen as a primary cause of overcrowding. Uh, the Business Post can reveal that two high-powered groups have been established within the Department of Health and the HSE to drive workforce reform in the health service. Seven-day rostering is seen as the key to unlocking better health outcomes. The group will try to establish the structure and resourcing requirements of a seven-day hospital system ahead of crucial public sector pay talks this summer uh, when hospital staff will face new rostering demands from the state. Uh, state. Uh, and below the fold uh, on the business post, and this is a story that we'll come back to because this isn't the only paper in which something like this features, um, a change of leader in Fine Gael before the next election has suddenly come on the agenda, according to party sources, with Simon Harris viewed as a clear favourite to succeed Leo Varadkar. It comes as several members of the parliamentary party have expressed concern that Varadkar's return to the Taoiseach's office has seen a rudderless drift engulf the party. Uh, More on that, as I said, in just a moment. 
Finally for now, though, the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, Kinahan gang protected by Dubai elites is the headline there. Uh, John Mooney writes that the Kinahan cartel is being sheltered by powerful elites in Dubai, which puts law enforcement at a disadvantage in a battle to dismantle one of the most powerful criminal organisations in the world. Senior Guardi are holding out little hope that the UAE will take decisive action against the Kinahans if officials are in receipt of bribes or payments routed through companies under the guise of director's fees. The cartel is known to have financial links to one of Dubai's most powerful families, which is represented on the board of a company suspected of facilitating its money laundering schemes. Uh, They range from trading in commodities to actions within the entertainment industry. Uh, The piece also says that it's believed that Daniel Kinahan is also uh, thought to have resumed his involvement in professional boxing, uh, albeit using proxies uh, to do his bidding. Uh, That's your tour of the front pages of the papers this morning. Join the studios to discuss those and more by Aoife Barry, journalist and author of Social Capital, uh, Life Online in the Shadow of Ireland's Tech Boom, and by Declan Power, who is a security and defence analyst and a former member of the Irish Defence Forces. Uh, good morning to you both, and thanks very much for coming in. Um, Aoife, I will start with yourself. I mentioned that piece below the fold on the Business Post um, about there suddenly being question marks over Leo Varadkar's future as leader of Fine Gael and, and therefore as Taoiseach. One thing which is really striking is that the Business Post has a large two-page spread about this, the Sunday Independent has mm-hmm. a large two-page spread about this and the Sunday Times have a large two-page spread about this. And one would think that if the three Sunday broadsheets are all suddenly, uh, all off their own volition, all doing similar pieces about how mm-hmm. Leo Varadkar's future is far from certain, one would think there's no smoke without fire. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be Leo Varadkar waking up this morning and thinking, oh, we'll have a look at the Sunday papers, see what's what's been happening <laughs> politically. Yeah. What, are, what are people saying about Fine Gael? And then realising not just one, but three all the main papers are carrying stories about how a lot of members, unnamed members of your own party don't really have that much faith in you, think that the there's kind of a, the party is rudderless. Um, you know, what was interesting, I think, was that there is a message throughout those three different um, articles, which goes back to what you're, what you're saying there about like, you know, no, no smoke without fire. But the, the message was there's no heave, you know, nothing's mm. being organised. We're not actually, we're not all coming together to say this because we're trying to force him out. And yet you're wondering, OK, well, what are you trying to do? Clearly, this is a coordinated thing. It's not yeah. just one or two Fine Gael TDs. It's a numerous Fine Gael TDs. There's, there's it's no also counsellors. We're creating this narrative that you're suddenly on thin ice. Exactly. Yeah. And I always find as someone who's like never been involved in a political party, you know, or anything like that, I always find it so interesting to look at the like machinations of what happens and how as a reporter, following these stories so they start with one one thing or usually it's one little thing today it's not it's three big stories yeah. and how that narrative goes and, and where it goes to and whether or not people are able to cut it off at the pass and it not become a huge thing or whether this actually does become something bigger I mean will Leo Varadkar be um, you know not feel too bad because of all of the lines in it saying this isn't a heave when we all know that people will claim one thing mm. in an article especially when they're um, not being named and then will turn around and do the opposite. But it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't look good for him. And I think it is interesting though, looking at the, who's in the race to succeed him and seeing things like, you know, um, Simon Harris being named, for example, and then comments about Helen McEntee being on maternity leave and that potentially damaging her her yeah. chances. That for me really stuck out in a really bad way. I thought that is, we already have, we don't have parity, gender parity in the doll. Yeah. There's already legal issues around whether or not people can actually take maternity leave and they're trying to actually fix all of that at the moment. And now you're saying that in the in the kind of fight to be a leader for a party, if you take the time off um for maternity leave, you could actually damage your own prospects. Yeah. That stuck out to me as one of the threads in this that I felt, you know, 
not very happy about yeah. reading that. Well, I'm glad you pointed it out because it's one line that could easily be overlooked when you're thinking about the machinations of what could be happening uh, within Fine Gael. Um, Declan, your, your thoughts on the fact that three papers have all independently this weekend decided to post question marks about the thesis future? Yeah, it uh, seems that they went out to present us with a smorgasbord of uh, discontent within Fine Gael. But... Uh, what I found interesting uh, were two things, one of which uh, Aoife has uh, alluded to as well. But the first is that when you look into it, it seems to be emanating from the bottom up, uh, that you know there, there seems to be discontent within a lot of uh, Fine Gael council, uh, councillor circles mm. about Leo's positioning and maybe uh, his well-known tin ear for, uh, for popular culture, for, for taking stances on certain things. You know, the issue about his uh, partner tweeting disrespectfully during the coronation, things like that. Mm. So when you drill down into it, there isn't a huge amount in, in it. I don't think we'll be seeing the end of Leo anytime soon. But what I do find interesting is there is a growing theme emerging about uh, Simon Harris and indeed, you know, mm-hmm. the, the chase for the leadership and that, you know, there's a lot of positioning that if there is going to be a leadership contest, it's looking like Harris and McEntee would be the two front runners. Bit of talk about Jennifer Carroll McNeil. Mm-hmm. But I think Harris and McEntee represent, or certainly Fine Gael, they want to kind of put it out there that these are the younger guard coming into the fore. And I think that's, if there if there was any organisational thought to this, that makes sense because they're reminding people that there is a much younger, uh, in-tune element. And I think, uh, you know, um, the point was made about the unfairness of uh, somebody taking maternity leave. And, and th- that's unfortunate. I think mm. politics is a blood sport. I think the, uh, but the other way to look at this is just Harris had an opportunity and he flourished during that opportunity. He's He was a safe pair of hands. He was lucky, but also he, he boxed cleverly while he was yeah, in justice. Quite a busy pair of hands. And, and he's seen yeah. in education, higher and further education, he's seen as agile and mobile. He's not just, you know, keeping a steady flow. He's been innovative. He's bringing in new programmes for people to get higher education that wouldn't come along the normal lines. And he's quite personable. And he's mm. mixing that with a very, how would I say, uh, efficient type of uh, social yeah. media management. So... I, well, as a yeah. as a Leinster House inhabitant, although I haven't been there much in the last week because the dog was on recess, and I do, by the way, I think that that might have something to do with it. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's just a, a total straws in the wind thing. I think if the, if all three papers are doing it, there's it's because there's there. something there to it. But I think this is the sort of thing that blossoms in a week where the Dáil and Shannon aren't sitting. So suddenly you have people about the corridors of Leinster House kind of going, right, well... What, what am I going to file on this week if yeah, there's no activity and there's nothing much happening? Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason why it's Simon Harris and Helen McEntee is because, well, there are six members of cabinet, uh, six, six cabinet level grade uh, ministers within Fine Gael. Um, by the time of the next election, assuming that it's spring 2025, Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney will have been in cabinet together for 14 years, unbroken. Uh, longer than Bertie Ahern was, longer than any of the Fianna Fáil ministers from 97 to 2010, including Micheál Martin. Um, Pascal Donoghue will have been in Cabinet for 11 years. Heather Humphreys will have been in Cabinet for 11 years. Simon Harris will have been in Cabinet for the relatively short period of nine years and will suddenly seem like a spring chicken because mm-hmm. it's still only be 37 or 38. <laughs> and Helen McEntee will have done five full years. There's a kind of a thinking, well, if the party has any hope of... Uh, you know, having energy going into a fourth consecutive term or energy in the opposition, you sort of have to presume that it's going to be one of the two younger serving ministers and then, you, then you're left with, well, isn't Helen McEntee 
or is it Simon Harris who has now put himself about and will have already had nine years of cabinet yeah. experience? Yeah, that, that that completely makes sense. And I think as well, when you look at like the threat that Sinn Féin po- poses as well and how it's hoovering up a lot of the kind of younger voters and people who want to see, even though it's not like there, Sinn Féin is full of really young people who haven't been in politics for a long time, but it does, it does have younger members. But mm. that idea that like that challenge and needing to seem like refreshed and that like we're forward facing and like the referendums, you know, a number of years ago were important for Fine Gael and showing particularly like Simon Harris and showing we're in touch with what the younger generations want. We're we're moving forward, we're, we're changing Ireland. And there is that sense now where they're saying, OK, things are a bit stale now. We don't look like we're kind of mm. making any difference. Our polling is, you know, is pretty stagnant. And that idea of like you're saying you do have the two standouts, Simon Harris and Helen McEntee, who could represent that going forward. And it's interesting that, I mean, you know, Leo Radker is only what, 41, 42? 42, I think, 42. Yeah. And he, he was seen as the young the young buck, the, he's still a young guy. And yet there's something 44, about... 44, me. Well, there you go. We, we, we made him younger still than he young, is. Still he's young. still really yeah. young, right? Um, but there's that idea that he's he is maybe being seen as you know, kind of aging out of it or maybe it's that they don't, there seems to be a message in it too that maybe he's not, he's not appearing at some uh, meetings they expect him to turn up to, to some parliamentary party meetings. I think they weren't happy about him not being at that. They're using all of these reasons to yeah. to, to position him in a place where we're maybe getting a little bit tired of him. But again, like we say, this is this is three articles. Yeah. I don't know what the entire membership of Finnegal thinks of it. The other reason I think, by the way, this has all popped up this week is because not only is it a recess week, but it's also literally a year from this week that we'll be having the local and European elections. And that seems to mm. me to be the real asset test, Declan, because Leo Varadkar hasn't had great electoral success. Yes. Uh, with Finnegal, yeah, he might argue otherwise, but they've their vote shares declined mm-hmm. at each of the two general elections. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and I think that there is a degree of uh, a fear factor at that level yeah. that they might get, you know, really badly blindsided mm. at the local elections. Yeah, sorry, one local elections and one uh, one general election in which the vote share has fallen. Yeah, so, yeah, and but so the I think their strategy for local elections has to be somewhat different from from the national. Uh, election strategy and so they want to be able to present somewhat differently uh, Leo is never going to be an easy sell down to the heartlands and he you know when he when he became leader it wasn't necessarily the mainstream party that were voting for him but you know so and we've seen that before you know with yeah. the system they have over the conservatives in England so I think uh, councillors are want to maybe bring something to the fore that they can remind the, the voting heartlands that it's not just Leo that is Fianna Gael and that there are others coming along that mm. may be more palatable, palatable to people who might be of a more conservative or traditionalist mindset. Yeah. Uh, I do think there's a degree of a little bit of incoherence about it all. I take your point that it's summer and something had to be filled. But I also think that there's a little bit of um, maybe people taking a bit of an opportunity to wave their flag to get their, their brand out there. Mm. Different key personalities Definitely. that we mentioned. That's politics, isn't it? Definitely. It is, like, of it's course. Like we, have, we have this chance to say something. Yeah. We want to we kind of get our, get our spoken yeah. and we will use this, this quiet opportunity to do that. And you have to be like, is this reflective of what's really happening? Or is it like a new narrative that's going to be developing? I mean, maybe Absolutely. it is totally reflective and, of it. And I think from Fine Gael's point of view, this isn't actually, you know, if you look at it counterintuitively, this actually isn't a bad uh, representation. It shows them as a party that are kind of searching, thinking, yeah. uh, you know, there is there is debate and there is a challenge going on. Whereas like, Fianna Fáil, 
don't, aren't quite presenting that and Sinn Féin always come across as quite autocratic so I think uh, there's a you know if you were to say that there was some clever uh, intent uh, I would say it's that it's presenting itself as a vibrant democratic entity which mm. can't be a bad thing yes yeah, well internal mm. dissent is, is something that was always the hallmark of, of parties that were in their heyday so maybe it's, uh, it's it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if you could think of it that way mm-hmm. uh, one person's already got in touch to say that long time listeners of Callan's Kicks won't think that uh, displeasure with Leo Varadkar is anything new of course you shouldn't be listening to Callan's Kicks because it clashes with the final half hour of the hard shoulder uh, here on News Talk. Uh, conversation that counts, everyone. Um, speaking of leaders that are under a little bit of pressure, uh, page six of the Business Post, uh, Aoife, has some interesting criticism about Eamon Ryan and the fact that the transport budget for everything other than roads is fully on track but when it comes to actually building roads Eamon Ryan ain't moving I really enjoy this story a lot because like oh it's just re- sorry I just find some of these things really funny sometimes the, so the story is basically that the spend on public transport walking and cycling projects under under Ryan's brief um, it was three times the amount spent on Irish roads um, which maybe you know it, it, it points to obviously his his remit that they, the idea that maybe they're, that they're assuming he's sitting there deliberately not making any movement on spending money on roads because he obviously I don't know they think he thinks roads are a bad thing and he wants to see everybody on cycle lanes and uh, in buses or whatever um, it's mainly Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, of course uh, criticising him for this because it's an underspend of 100 million in his transport budget and there's basically supposed to be a 2 to 1 ratio in the program for under the program for government in terms of the spend on public transport, walking, mm. cycling versus to spend on roads. And there are a couple of roads detailed in the article that, you know, uh, need a bit of work and that people do want uh, do want work done on. Um, but also, if you, if you read through it, by the end, you, you get to that, you get to the end of the article and they say there's probably not going to be an underspend by the end of the year. So it's only just in the first couple of months or first three or so months of 2023 that this is mm. going on. But I just really enjoy that it's like trying to kind of needle at Eamon Ryan saying like look at this he won't even spend the money that he has waiting on roads well, but what, like looks like he will by the end of the year. So. Yeah well one thing which, which I found very uh, interesting about this is that they uh, so this piece which is obviously based on anonymous briefings from Cabinet because you're not allowed to talk about uh, what happened at Cabinet but that it does say that um, Michael McGrath the Minister for Finance and Jack Chambers the Minister of State for Road Transport highlighted the urgent need for more spending on road maintenance given the poor state of, of roads in some parts of the country. The, the key words there to me, Declan, are uh, the Minister of State for Road Transport uh, was complaining that the roads budget isn't being spent. Now, I remember when the government was being formed, Hildegard Nocton had that job that Jack Chambers now has. He was the Minister of State for Road Transport and International Aviation. And the specific thinking was, if you left Eamon Ryan in that Department of Transport, basically unsupervised by the two larger parties, that the roads budget just wouldn't get spent at all. So they deliberately put in a junior minister responsible for the roads budget to make sure that it wasn't Eamon Ryan's fault. If that logic holds... Jack Chambers is at cabinet complaining about spending that he's supposed to be responsible for. <laughs> yeah, when you when you um, lay it out like that, that's exactly how it looks. And but I also think part of this too, going back to what Aoife was talking about, is the Greens put themselves in uh, sometimes a position to be a very easy target for behaving in sometimes irrational and even emotive ways. And I think this is an example of where the other two parties want to present them as the. The, the not adult in the room when it comes to serious issues regarding infrastructure mm. and it makes the other two parties look like the responsible adults um, and it doesn't help that Eamon also was one of the people who wanted to rewild the countryside by bringing back wolves and, and he's becoming the bet war now of rural Ireland as well so I think this all plays into that yeah, Shane Coleman yeah. of this parish is writing on the back page of the Business Post today that uh, not sure if I'm allowed to read these words at this hour on, on a day so <laughs> I'll, I'll blank one Everyone hates them and the working class think that they're sh- 
It's tough being a green now, said the headline there. Ne'er a truer word spoken. Uh, plenty more in the papers, including what Boris Johnson might have up his sleeve next when we're back with uh, Declan and Aoife after this. Don't go away. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC on News Talk. Tom has been in touch on Twitter about the coverage of Fine Gael and question marks over the future of Leo Varadkar. Paper never refused ink. I imagine this story was spread by Varadkar himself, says Tom. Silly season starts earlier every year. Some of that may be true. Some of it may not. Um, Declan Power and Aoife Barry are with me to go through what's in the papers. And there is, uh, predictably enough, a lot about what's coming next across the water because this ongoing psychodrama about Brexit and its ringleaders and now the future of Boris Johnson just goes on and on and on. We'll talk about what's in the papers in just a second, but we are joined on the line by London-based journalist Enda Brady. Um, Enda, thanks for joining us. Um, Having a look at the British papers, it's kind of hard to know where things stand because some of them are saying that the ongoing drip feed of resignations is a deliberate attempt to destabilise the government that Boris has one final sword up his sleeve. Others are saying that he is now done and dusted, that's it, he's a beaten docket. What do you reckon? I, I think he's toast. I mean, to use his own phrase, Gavin, I think he's dead in a ditch and he's gone and he's yesterday's man. Now, some elements of the conservative press here who adore Boris Johnson and have always been his cheerleaders, they're doing their best today to make out that there's some fiendishly clever plan. There's never a plan. He never puts any thought into anything other than himself. And I think what's going to happen is that there will be a period of quietness. I think he'll go away. He'll make some money. There'll be lots of trips abroad to various different right-wing think tanks who pay an awful lot of cash for him to speak. I don't know why or where this money comes from, but he'll line his pockets because he always needs money. And I'll tell you a little story, Gav, uh, that happened here a few months ago. There was a knock on my door. I live outside Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire. Okay. And it was a canvasser from the Liberal Democrats. Very safe, very, very safe. It's been conservative since 1913. And the guy who knocked on my door was called Freddie. He was from the Liberal Democrats. And he told me that he would be fighting the election next year. Uh, and I said, all right, so you're going to go up against John Howells. And he said, no. He said, the word is that Boris Johnson will run in Henley next year. And that was six months ago. So the opposition candidate had that intel six months ago. Okay. So the thinking is that Boris Johnson is resigning this seat now in Uxbridge and South Royslip. Uh, he was the constituency MP for the London GA grounds, of course, as we all might remember. Uh, so he's resigned yeah. that one, and then he's going to be moving to Henley on Thames, and he'll run there again next time. Or at least that's, that's their thinking. That's the feeling. Yeah, that's... that's look, he... I think he's just such a narcissist. He he won't leave the political scene. I think for a while now, once he makes the money, I think there will continue to be little hand grenades rolled in to unsettle Rishi Sunak, who he quite clearly despises. And this goes back to last year when he felt that Sunak had brought him down and, you know, the resignations and Sajid Javid as well. Mm. He He holds grudges. He's he's not a particularly pleasant individual. He's not a nice man at all. I've known him 25 years. And if you look at the damage he has inflicted on this country, you know, Brexit has been an unmitigated disaster. Year on year, Britain has gone backwards. And a lot of this should be laid at Johnson's door. And I think the, the only people who who really like him are 75 years plus members of the Conservative Party and they all live in big houses and they couldn't care less. Mm. Uh, I'll come back to the the grievance with Rishi Sunak in a minute but I suppose there's a question as to whether Boris Johnson actually would have 
in truth, any interest in running for parliament again because he's not really interested in public representation so much as power. And presumably he'll only want to be in the Commons if he thinks there's a chance of being prime minister again, which doesn't look all that likely right now. So he's always worshipped Winston Churchill. And if you speak to his friends, and there are plenty of them around where I live, they will tell you and point out that Churchill, you know, got turfed out went away and came back and won an election and was back in Downing Street for a second term. Johnson has always kind of hero-worshipped Winston Churchill. He even wrote that book. Um, mm. and, and I think in his head he sees himself as some sort of uh, Churchillian-type figure, a, a pound-shop Churchill, I, I often call him, because there's just, you know, there's no substance to the man whatsoever. All the rallying around Ukraine and Zelensky, you know, he saw this as his great big moment. But if you look at his actual leadership in inverted commas over the few years that he was prime minister, I mean, he missed the first five COBRA meetings when COVID emerged. Yeah. You know, the British government's in complete crisis. He's the prime minister. He didn't turn up for the first five meetings. And then the next thing that happened was, oh dear, you know, he gave a speech where he said that he was shaking hands with people in a hospital and then a week later, he's on a ventilator in ICU. I mean, you couldn't make it up. Yeah. Um, about the grievance with Rishi Sunak, and this is something that might be worth just touching on for a minute, because there's this perception that the resignations now of, of himself and Nadine Dorries and this other guy, Nigel uh, Smith, Nigel Short, whoever it was who resigned yesterday, it's so forgettable that even his name escapes me right now, um, that it's all being done. <laughs> Adams. Adams, yeah. thank you. Uh, it's all, Nigel Short is a former chess, uh, chess grandmaster. That's where it is. Uh, he played Gary Kasparov in 1993. It was live on Channel 4. Um the reason why all these things are being dripped out, dripped out is to cause damage to Rishi Sunak, to destabilise him. And I'm wondering why it is that they think that Sunak is responsible. Because if it is Partygate that's brought him down, that's not Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak didn't instigate the inquiry. Rishi Sunak didn't make him go to events that weren't supposed to take place. So that that's not on him. No, but Johnson holds a grudge and he sees Sunak as having something he wants, which is the crown, the premiership, number 10. He wants him out. But look, the, the big story for me in the past week, all this kind of Conservative Party psychodrama and the, the madness that constantly follows this man Johnson. The big story for me, Gav, in the past week was the poll that came out that said, and I got very little coverage in Conservative newspapers for, for the very reason I'm going to tell you. Mm. Keir Starmer is on track next year to record a bigger election landslide than Tony Blair did in 1997. He just needs to turn up every day and... and, and keep breathing which is incredible considering how big the victory was in 2019 and the number of safe Labour seats that fell that they have to come from such a low base and that they would get to that level in one go I think people are exasperated here Gav honestly you know look, mortgages have gone up every month I think it's 10 monthly increments now 10 months on the spin people's mortgages have gone up we've just come out of the gas and electric situation in in winter when people were hemorrhaging money there are 2,200 food banks in operation across the United Kingdom I mean the country's in an absolute mess and this government, the previous government, I mean, we're missing out Liz Truss here, bless her. I don't know what she's up to <laughs> these days. Um, you know, Britain, I can, I've, I've lived here since I did the Leaving Cert in 93. And that's 30 years coming up now this summer. Um, I can't remember Britain being in such a bad state. It's so bad. 
Right. Uh, on that note, uh, Enda Brady, London-based journalist, thanks very much for joining us this morning with uh, that little guide as to what Boris Johnson's doing next. Uh, running in Henley on Thames. Uh, you heard it here first, uh, if he can find the seat. Uh, as I said, Declan Power and Aoife Barry are still with me in studio. Uh, Aoife, you've been picking out a, a fun line from some of the Boris Johnson coverage this morning. Yeah, um, I, can't, I can't remember if this is Sunday Times or it might be Sunday Times or Sunday Independent, but I think it's Sunday Times. Uh, there's a line in one of the articles that says that Boris is like Captain Scarlet, he just regenerates, which I think is just so good. Um, and, you know, and I mean, maybe he, it does feel like, like Andrew was saying there, he's at the point of kind of maybe no return. Yeah. But he will regenerate in another form. And if you look at what he's got lined up, there's a memoir, is a TV show. Like he's not going to go away. He might mm. not have the role, the powerful role that he wants. And if he kicks up enough of a stink of it and makes it seem like this like, I don't know, poison chalice or this like, well, I wouldn't want it anyway because you all did this to me. Yeah. Then it frees him up to get his next role for grabbing attention and his next powerful role of keeping his face out there because he's a man who cannot sit back and not be a public figure. Yeah. He has to be out there in some way. Which kind of begs then the question as, as to whether, you know, if Boris Johnson is all about power or influence, has he now got the point where he's nearly transcending politics, that he's like reverse Trump, that he'll go from <laughs> running the country to like reality TV star and that that would be his next way of wielding influence? Um, I think he is going to transcend politics. I think, he, you know, he, he's got various outlets, he's got various platforms, but I think, I hope actually, that he is a busted flush with re- uh, regard to being a serious influencer. I think uh, the, to paraphrase Hillary Clinton, the, the basketfuls of deplorables uh, will coalesce around him and they'll go to him for their fix of outrage and I think a lot of people, myself included, would like to just see him bugger off back to the Bullingdon Club, wherever you know mm-hmm. he emanated from. He can go on GBTV, he can write his polemics in the Telegraph. But I don't think he's going to be a serious influence uh, on the UK going forward, because I think there's a critical mass of people that see him for what he is. The contrived clown uh, and the contrived buffoonery act has damaged their country significantly, has damaged this region significantly mm. and also his dishonesty and his duplicity and his deceit with his own party colleagues with others including our own Taoiseach making promises reneging on them you know the, I, I think the average uh, uh, British person uh, wants to see some stability in their politics and that's what Sunak is giving them now at this point in time. Uh, I w- wish you'd tell us what you really think. About <laughs> <laughs> I was going to interrupt and say it's like uh, it just reminds me when you're talking there of that the episode of Succession and the line you're not serious people you know which the dad says to mm. um, to the kids like that's how you feel about bars like you're not yeah. a serious person and yet you're in a position of power or you yeah. were in a position of power and now you're being forced out of that or you feel you're being forced out of that should I say Um and I, I mean, I was thinking there when you're saying about the reality TV thing, the thing about Boris Johnson is he occupies a certain level of society in the UK where he's not like the common man or the common person. He's in this very high, you know, this very high kind of level of society in the hierarchy where he has to find some way to kind of get out there in a, in a kind of a popular reality TV way mm-hmm. without being involved in something like that, where it's kind of too many people who aren't of his level, too many people who aren't of his kind of high, rich, um, powerful, posh people, Tory, Eton level. Mm. So it will be interesting to see where he goes. But wherever he goes, he will have to be the person in charge. He's not going to be going somewhere where somebody else is dictating to him what yeah, to do. Yeah, which is why I, I think um, if it is all about trying to find a way back to number 10, if he does just want the thing that he can't have, I, I kind of wonder what the long-term plan is. Because much like... Finnegal, where by the time of the next election, the party will have been in power for I think for fourteen years unbroken, and there's clearly an appetite for change mm-hmm. over there. So, does Boris Johnson want to be the leader of the Conservatives if it means being in opposition while he's trying to make the case that they did things better 
before they found themselves out on the rear with 150 odd seats like I just find it hard to imagine yeah. that he's prepared to lead them on the opposition benches he'll, he'll only want the job if it means being Prime Minister and I just don't see how that can, can all come about um, moving on to a couple of other bits and pieces in the papers um, Declan I want to get your thoughts on, on the Sunday Times splash today uh, which is about the Kinahan gang and the this suggestion mm. by John Mooney that part of what's making the gang so hard to access, and um, obviously we're still thinking about the the arrest of Liam Byrne last week, um, that the reason why the Kinahans are somewhat safe in Dubai is because they are being protected by influential elites and that they might mm. be uh, now have some sort of collaboration with one of the most influential families there that's keeping law away from them. Yeah, well, John has been writing about the Kinahans for quite some time, and he's also been writing uh, about national security issues. And this story is a—it's a, an interesting blend of both because it's reminding us that the Kinahans are no longer being tackled uh, in a typical law enforcement way to deal with a, a criminal grouping. They have been recognised within the secu- within security circles in this country as a form of national security threat, but they've been recognised more crucially uh, internationally as an entity that have to be tackled by what is effectively a, a law enforcement alliance mm. that crucially uh, enjoys the support of the, the US, not just US law enforcement, but the US State Department. So the US brought to bear uh, a number of tools to damage the Kinahan's operations, including diplomatic uh, and economic, as well as the law enforcement tools. So they have been pushed back into a, an area that the, is a smaller um operating base. And now what the articles like this are doing is bringing a, a degree of diplomatic pressure to bear in Dubai. The, in Dubai, they probably don't really care. But what it also means is that it's getting harder and harder for them to operate with impunity. Uh, and it's reminding other countries that this isn't just purely seen as a criminal matter, especially when the US are involved. Mm. So, uh, so what, what is the, just to, to bring you back a bit, what, what is or is there, or how significant is a question of national security posed by a group like this? Because of their, uh, the criminal alliances that they built up and the fact that they're involved uh, across so many borders has brought it unwanted attention upon them. And so now you have a number of states deciding that they need to be at the very least disrupted, uh, at the very best completely degraded and destroyed. Um, they still have in a, you know, financial influence, they still have a footprint. And the government, in governments I should say, in the Middle East that are willing to support them because of their uh, financial kickbacks mm. are going to find it more and more difficult to try and ignore that. And I think that you know the, the, this is part of a campaign. The article's publicity uh, of this nature is going to make it more and more difficult for them to have influence. Uh, they'll continue to operate at a criminal level, but it'll be much more diminished. And their ability to make money would be much more diminished. And therefore, their ability to have that sway with Middle Eastern governments will be gradually diminished as well. Okay. <clears throat> so I think it's, uh, this, uh, this article represents uh, a series of steps that are probably being brought into play to limit their influence. Mm, that's the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, final two paragraphs on that are, are maybe worth reading before we go to a break. Uh, Dubai is now seen... Uh, writes John Mooney as a big problem for Europe due to its intolerance of organised its tolerance rather excuse me of organised crime gangs failure to enforce any money laundering regulations and corruption in public office some of the world's most wanted fugitives now reside in the UAE safe in the knowledge that they won't be extradited among them is Isabel dos Santos the daughter of a former Angolan president who allegedly embezzled one billion dollars it says 
and those involved in the One Malaysia Development Burhad affair, one of the biggest financial scams in modern history. Emirati officials are also accused of allowing Malaysian sovereign wealth funds to be plundered in return for multi-million dollar cuts from the proceeds. Um, so, all grand then, uh, in, in summary. Uh, lots more to come in the papers when we're back with Declan and Eve after this. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Still joined in the studio by Declan Power and Aoife Barry at 11.45, going through what's making the papers this Sunday morning. Um, understandably, there's an awful lot. Now, a lot of it is kind of is theatre and panto, but there is quite a lot written about the indictment of Donald Trump and the criminal charges that he's going to be facing in court in Florida uh, this coming week. Um, Aoife, in truth, I don't really know where to start because so much of it is is kind of theatre. And is he energised by this? Yeah. Is he crippled by this? It's kind of hard to know. What jumped out for you this morning? Uh, yeah, there's a piece in it about uh, his, uh, what's it called again? Sorry, it's about the texts and calls. It's in Sunday Independent on page 18, about the texts and calls from uh, from Trump's Mar-a-Lago and how the case was built around that. And I thought that was interesting because it gave an insight into like some of the specific details around it because I think it might be a bit confusing for, for people if they're if they're thinking like, oh, is this the first, the second indictment? What's going on? What's What does it all mean? Who's been saying what? Um, and it has some of those details in that. So I thought that was interesting, you know, and I think when you read the actual actual details about Mar-a-Lago and about like how many people are passing through or Mm. like tens of that it was where 10,000 people passed through Mar-a-Lago while all of these documents were in the bathroom when you see the photographs again Mm. when you see it all in context and you know you realise what it all means and you look at the quotes that are taken in, the, in that article from those texts and calls about, um, there's a particular one I think where uh, Trump told a person, I think it was a valet, to stand back because the uh, they, because the documents were secret documents. <laughs> like, like I just thought that like it's very Trumpian to say stand back. It's only yeah. about, you know, these self-destruct in five minutes. Um, <laughs> like when actually it's like this really serious stuff that he is doing. Yeah. But it becomes, it's like you're saying, a pantomime because yeah. he's involved in it and everything he touches turns into a pantomime. You know, he releases a statement first on Truth Social before you get an, any official statement. He controls the narrative. He pivots it into a call for money. It's is it's unbelievable how yeah. stupidly clever he is about things. Like it's those two things. <laughs> both stupidly stupid clever, clever is a great phrase when it comes to Donald Listen, Trump. I you know yourself having covered this story <laughs> since the early days of yeah. his campaign. Yeah. Like no more please I don't want any more uh, like, <laughs> Trump happening it, it, it is worth just reflecting on Declan the fact that like it, it's easily forgotten because you sort of think of Mar-a-Lago as this kind of like mm. summer retreat for the guy but like it is still like a working functioning hotel so that when you see reports of there being uh, you know just cardboard cartons of documents just left on a stage in a function room like this is it, it's like think of your local country hotel now mm. it's a different grade of, of clientele I suspect but your local country ho- hotel room and there's something up on the stage where the, the, the bride and groom are having their wedding party and just on the stage there are cartons of documents taken for the White House yeah. some of them inappropriately National, uh, sensitive documents yeah. that are classified yeah and that he's uh, in, in a, it's farcical uh, but it's disturbing to think that uh, it's emerging now that he was using them as props for after dinner entertainment referring to uh, uh, classified military documents about plans of defence plans of attack if it's all borne out aside from the legal consequences it really should be saying to the the swing voter in the US this guy is not fit to be in charge of a hen house let alone the United States Uh, and I think that's one of the, the key things that can come out of this of course his adoring fan base 
mm-hmm. will continue to support him no matter what. And one of the, the disturbing things for me about this is, and like I've taken a degree of glee in it because I started off with uh, to try and keep an open mind about him when he was elected. And by the time of his, uh, the end of his presidency, I couldn't wait to see the back of the yeah, orange-faced yeah. buffoon. But the, uh, and, yeah, and the, the damage he was doing to Western relations and alliances, particularly between Europe and the US. But on a, on a more important and a more contemporary note, Marion McKeown's piece in the Sunday Business yes, Post very interesting bring, piece. brings yeah. us to remind that even though this should be all negative, it's a... It's boosting his coffers. It's boosting his war chest. Mm -hmm. His faithful are contributing more and more money that's allowing him to boost his profile in social media, boost his profile in international media and to, uh, you know, to keep fighting his way into the public consciousness. So... I would say the strategy of uh, bringing up the uh, all his inadequacies uh, and uh, using legal weapons, lawfare, as they say, call it in America, to damage his reputation and make him unelectable, it's a double-edged sword. It's the very thing that's also keeping him in the fight. So maybe the Democrats need to be kind of a little bit more counterintuitive and try and cut off the pipeline of publicity. Mm. Uh, within an hour, uh, says Marmy Cohn's piece, the indictment had been parlayed into another appeal for donations and following the indictment uh, by the DA in Manhattan on the far less serious charges it's worth noting she points out that Donald Trump's campaign raised $8 million in 48 hours Incredible like and and I thought it was interesting too and she mentioned it a little bit Mary McCoden does in that article and there's also a piece in the New York Times today about the war rhetoric around his supporters you know Mm. that idea it's like it's an eye for an eye now that it's so interesting to see that rhetoric uh, amongst his supporters and amongst prominent supporters you know, at public meetings in the media and that gives an indication of what we are to expect going forward yeah. you know in, in, in the race for 2024 um, and he's he's playing directly to his base who who love that you know and he's constantly been doing having that sort of approach and we're not going to see any change yeah. in his paper so it'll be interesting to see what happens next now that the kind of uh, the pressure is really being yeah. put on him uh, legally. A uh, couple of pieces before we go. Uh, pages 14 and 15, Declan, of the Sunday Independent. A piece by Sean Boyne about, uh, under the headline, We Cherish Irish Neutrality but UN Restrictions Rankle. And about this whole question of the triple lock and whether it means we are as, as neutral as we think we are. And Absolutely. Given yeah. your, your area of expertise, is something you have some thoughts on. Well, I think uh, Sean, I, I know Sean from years ago and he's a very well-established uh, security and defence thinker and writer. And I think he's distilled something uh, down to one of its bare important points. The forthcoming consultative forums, which I'm taking part in myself, mm. on uh, international security, one of the key things that uh, is going to be tr- uh, trashed out is the concept of the triple lock. Now, a lot of people know that it means we can't send troops overseas without the assent of the doll, the government and a UN mandate. Mm. Now, somewhat ironically, if the UN, if there was a UN mandate that involved a declaration of war, we could be involved in that. We could uh, contribute troops to that. But the problem with it from our perspective is that a UN resolution requires the assent of the Security Council. Mm. So Including the five permanent members. The fi- yeah. Well, the five permanent members are, yeah. are the sticking point. And of course, at the moment, me Martin has been uh, reminding us that that means Russia can, has a veto over how yeah. uh, Irish foreign policy. Did that mean that when we were trying to send people towards Kabul or Khartoum to try and deal with the fallout of, of the falls of governments in recent times that we actually we were limited in how many army ranger personnel we could send to extract our own citizens? Well certainly the government interpreted it that way. Now there was a school of thought that said well that's a humanitarian mission it shouldn't matter but actually the triple lock is very clear. Deployment of Irish troops abroad mm. uh, that go over 12 requires as I've said, yeah. the, 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 the three elements. Um, 
it should be remembered too, uh, back in Macedonia, the Macedonian mission, uh, it's about 15 years ago, uh, Irish troops and Gardaí were nearly pulled out of an important uh, Europe, uh, European Union and UN-sponsored mission because the Chinese were going to renege on their uh, endorsement of the UN resolution. And it's not just the Russians and the Chinese, uh, the other two, the French, the British, the Americans. We're letting five other countries have, uh, for a sovereign state, have yeah. a say in how we decide things. What we want is to acknowledge that we need to exist in an era of cooperation with like-minded countries, but that we have an independent say so that we're at the table discussing things, but that we're not being pushed around. So I think Sean's point is he explains the triple lock. And actually, what he uh, somewhat heartingly, he shows us that there is a growing awareness and a, a of the Irish public to look at, OK, maybe we should change it. And what should we change it to? And this is the other thing to think about. So should we be thinking, well, we're, we're very much integrated within the European Union. Mm. So and the European Union is a partner with the UN. The UN under Kofi Annan in 1996 said, I wish there were more NATOs and EUs. In, in Africa, that what he meant was that the UN could subcontract missions okay. to EU-led and NATO-led. Because Ireland, uh, you look at an Irish soldier on parade today and you'll see a number of NATO medals on their chest because Ireland has been in a number of NATO-led crisis management and uh, peace and security missions, far more so than some fully paid up NATO nations. So we've been able to kind of pick and choose missions that suit our a value system. Okay. And uh, the triple lock is preventing us doing right. those things. Uh, I wasn't aware of that. Continuing those things. <laughs> uh, just before we go, uh, one piece uh, that I did want to get your thoughts on uh, on page three of the Business Post today. Um, <laughs> great headline. Hot town, somewhere in the city, <laughs> dirty old Dublin's getting filthy and gritty. <laughs> Wonder what that's about, Aoife. It certainly is, yes. It's all about the dirty streets, which a lot of people have been tweeting about well, and it, talking about. And a lot about. of people have been tweeting the, about yeah, it. It's yeah, a, yeah and, and that's you know a great thing about social media, you know, that you can immediately see what's on the mind of people. And mm. like, I spend a lot of time in, in uh, Dublin city centre and, you know, it's been great seeing more tourists come into the country. It's it's showing that things are, you know, back, back, back and running after COVID. But on Honestly, sometimes you're walking down the streets, there's dog poo, there are the bin situation, the fact that in Ireland we have, or in Dublin in particular, we have the bins that, because people live in, in kind of tenement, uh, not tenement houses, sorry, in like the old Georgian houses um, yes, yeah. that were previously um around um, they can't have actual bins in their houses so they have to have um, bags the fact we've got the privatised waste means that that situation means that the seagulls can come in mm. pick everything apart and then you're seeing here that there are fewer bins in Dublin that there's gone from 3,500 really to, to 5,000 yeah from 5,000 to 3,500 bins so like 1,500 fewer bins. I mean, you go somewhere like Spain and you see the big communal bins where if you're staying in, a, you're living in an apartment, apartment living is massive in, in yeah. other countries. Down in the basement, you come down, there's a big, there's yeah, a big or even on the thing, street. Yeah. If you're in Barcelona, it's on the street, these big massive bins. Everybody just, you know, plays by the rules. Here in, in Dublin, you don't have that. And as a result, you have tourists and people who live live in the area walking around with so much rubbish everywhere. And there has to be a solution to it. It's, you know, it's not solely down to human behaviour in terms of people just willy-nilly throwing around rubbish. It is around... Mm the fact that you do have bins that can be picked apart and that we don't, you know, we have a lot of maintenance workers who do like the the hardest work in the city to try and keep it clean. They're doing all the silent work. They don't get any thanks for it, but they don't seem to have the same resources as they did have, according to the former Lord Mayor Hazel Chu. And that's a big problem. And that's why we're seeing this It's certainly hard to imagine how you could get by with a larger city and fewer bins knocking around. Uh, Let us know your thoughts on that, actually. Oh, it's 7-1400-106, the number for your WhatsApps. Uh, We're totally out of time. Uh, Declan Power, Security and Defence Analyst. And Aoife Barry, journalist and author of Social Capital, Life Online in the Shadow of Ireland's Tech Boom. Uh, All about the mediums that you can use to complain about the litter. Uh, in Dublin and elsewhere. (laughs) 
On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.